the wounds of childhood can haunt us for decades. The ghost of insecurity, the phantom of neglect. We find them lurking behind every corner long after we're grown, whispering to us, even amidst voices of love and affirmation. It can be so difficult to eradicate them. Who has power over a spirit world like that? This is a story about what it looks like to crave love. About the fear and mistrust and calculation and relief and forgiveness and reconciliation that mark any journey of relationship. It's a story about what's worth fighting for and what happens when you don't give up. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Jacob stands still while his mother wraps the goat skin around the backs of his hands. She ties leather cords around the hide and then around his palms, lashing the costume to her son. There's no way this will work. He looks down at the goat hair, this hastily conceived disguise. He does not look like his brother, but he certainly doesn't look like himself. His hands, his forearms are smooth, soft to the touch. His mother has always loved that. Skin like still water. That's the kind of thing she'd say to him. Not like your brother. He looks like wild game. Jacob closes his eyes the weight of his twin brother's stolen clothing heavy on his shoulders, the smell of Esau's sweat wafting from the garments hanging in the air around him like fog. Now your neck, Rebecca says. She reaches around him, draping more hide from the young goat around the nape of her favorite son's neck to make it more like the nape of her husband's favorite son. Nervous beads of sweat form next to the skin of the dead kid. Jacob's heart beats fast as he imagines this all going horribly wrong. Isaac, his father, elderly and blind as he may be, discovering this deceit, pronouncing on his secondborn not the blessing for the oldest brother, but a curse fit for an imposter like him. Rebecca, though, will not be deterred. It's the perfect chance. But they only have so much time. Esau will be back from his hunt before long. And every moment counts. The smell of food begins filling the air in the tent. Isaac's favorite dish simmers on the hearth. The one he chose as his last supper. To be eaten in the presence 
of his favorite son, with fresh game killed by Esau's skillful hands, a perfect prelude to the long-awaited bestowal of the fatherly blessing, a pronouncement of favor, a channeling of Yahweh's benevolence toward the firstborn, and, in Isaac's case, a passing down of the promise made by Yahweh to his father Abraham, a covenant that will gain global renown in the years and centuries to come. Isaac knows he may die any day now. It's time to confer his blessing. Rebecca ties the cord tight around her son's neck, fastening the patch of false hair. Then she puts the bowl of steaming food into his hands. Not wild game hunted and prepared by Esau, the request Rebecca had overheard, but a young goat from their pen, caught by Jacob and cooked by his mother. Some freshly baked bread for good measure. He'll never know the difference, she assures him. She pushes Jacob out the door and toward his father's tent. Jacob only needs a nudge, though. He's in it now. He never has been one to give up. He emerged from the birth canal, in fact, with his tiny fingers wrapped around his brother's heel, as if he knew how much was at stake in the birth order, even if the firstborn was only first by a second. Heel, they'd called him after that. That's what Jacob means, among other things. Named after one of his firstborn brother's body parts. Isaac is weak, his breathing labored, eyelids like slouched woolen blankets, tremors in his hands. Jacob stands at the entrance of the tent and says, My father. Here I am, replies Isaac, turning his head in the direction of the voice. Who are you, my son? I am Esau, your firstborn, Jacob lies. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? Isaac asks. Jacob's pulse quickens. Because Yahweh, your God, worked it out for me. Jacob cringes at the sound of his own voice. Surely he knows. Surely his father knows the voice of his secondborn. Isaac's brow furrows. He looks confused. Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? Jacob walks closer, looks into the eyes of his father, searching for recognition. But they're dim, unfocused, staring beyond him. Is it possible to want to be caught? Discovered? Seen? Jacob kneels, and Isaac reaches out his unsteady fingers. They grope in the air, and then find rest on the hide covering Jacob's hands. 
Isaac runs his fingers through the animal hair. The voice is the voice of Jacob, he says, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Are you really my son Esau? I am. Serve me, Isaac says, and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob hands him the food, pours him some wine, watches his father eat and drink. The minutes pass like hours. Rebecca surely crouches at the door, listening, watching for Esau's return. Finally, Isaac hands the bowl and the cup back to Jacob and says, please come closer and kiss me, my son. Sweat drips from the imposter's forehead, his heart pulsing. Jacob leans in, closer, closer, close enough to smell his father's breath. He kisses Isaac, an act of betrayal and longing, perhaps apology. Isaac breathes deep, the scent of his firstborn son's pilfered garments filling his nostrils. Finally, he smiles, beams, my son. So this is what it feels like to be Esau. Esau screams, howls when he finds out what Jacob has done. He's already traded away his birthright to his brother. The blessing is all he has left, had left. His future, Yahweh's favor, what's, what's to become of him? And his beloved father about to die and leave him with that, his mother. The grief, the rage, it's an acrid cocktail. I will kill my brother Jacob, Esau vows. But Rebekah, always listening, learns of her son's plot and warns Jacob in time for him to escape. And so Jacob flees his home, his homeland, his family, with none of the property due to him by the stolen birthright, and spends 20 years, hundreds and hundreds of miles north, in a far country. Those two decades bring their share of hardship, but so many blessings come. Jacob gets married, has children, 12 of them, in fact, and accumulates serious wealth, thousands of sheep, goats, camels, all kinds of livestock, Eventually, though, the time comes to move on, and when it does, something incredible happens. Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, and Isaac and Abraham, speaks to Jacob. What he says, though, is troubling. Yahweh tells Jacob to go home, back there where his brother's vengeful bloodlust is sure to finally catch up with him. But there's also a promise. 
if Jacob goes, Yahweh will go too, with him, every step of the way. No trickery, no bait and switch required. You go, and I will be with you. Could it be that easy? Jacob, his family, his livestock, and all his belongings form a huge caravan snaking its way across the landscape of Canaan, headed south toward home, toward his past, toward his brother. They journey on, day after day, more than a month of constant travel. Plenty of time for Jacob to play out various scenarios to entertain worst-case anxieties. But when they get to what will eventually be called Northern Jordan, Jacob is done imagining what will happen if he and his twin collide. In fact, He knows it's not if, but when. And so Jacob decides to take some initiative and set the inevitable encounter up for as much success as possible. He sends emissaries ahead of the caravan so that Esau's not surprised by Jacob's return home. They bear a diplomatic message from Jacob in which he refers to himself as Esau's servant. Perhaps that will pave the way for peace, or at least ameliorate the conflict. But when the emissaries return, they tell Jacob breathlessly, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. 400 men? How did Esau amass that kind of... He didn't even get Isaac's blessing. That sounds a lot like an army. Jacob's heart races. He immediately orders his clan to divide into two camps. If Esau kills half of his children, at least the other half may have a chance of escaping. Then Jacob drops to his knees and prays, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Then, as he stands up, Jacob has an idea. Is it divinely prompted? Is it his own idea? 
Either way, it's this. He decides to send gifts ahead, lavish ones. 220 goats, 220 rams, 30-some camels, 50 cows, 30 donkeys, an offering so extravagant it's more than many towns would be able to pay in tribute to a conquering king. And for maximum effect, he sends them separately, each herd arriving after the last in successive waves, each with a servant who has a particular message for Esau that communicates deference and humility apology, and goodwill. Once they've all gone, all Jacob can do is wait and see if it works. Night falls. By this time, Esau must be close. He could be here as soon as daybreak. And so Jacob lays down, watching his family in the darkness, anxious, concerned, trying to get some sleep. After tossing and turning for a while, Jacob gets up. In the darkness, he awakens his family and busies everyone with the task of packing up, gathers the livestock, and leads all of them, and the sheep, and the donkeys, and the cows, and the camels loaded down with everything he owns along the trail that heads down the sloped banks of the Jabbok River. The black water winds its way westward toward the Jordan. In daylight, the famously clear Jabuk reflects the white and coral and scarlet blossoms of the oleander flowers lining its steep shores. Now, though, all that color is obscured, shrouded by night. Moments later, the gentle sound of the flowing water is joined by the murmur of hushed voices, then the sound of splashing. In the faint starlight, Jacob steps into the water, leading Rachel and Leah, their servants Bilhah and Zilpah, and his children, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun and Dinah and little Joseph across this low spot to the far shore 30 feet away. After them, he leads more servants across with all his possessions, the tents and the cups and the clothing and the jewelry and the livestock, his life savings. Finally, Jacob kisses his precious family, sends them on in their two groups, and heads back across the river. Is he making sure everything and everyone got across safely? Is he wanting to pray? Whatever the reason, Jacob crosses back and stands on the far shore of the river Jabbok, alone. How strange it is to be alone. Father of an enormous family with employees and a menagerie of animals, He's always surrounded by conversation and crying and laughter and bickering. The sounds of children playing and women talking and sheep bleeding and camels lowing. The smells of wood smoke and baking bread and goat droppings and Rachel's skin and roasting meat. 
this mobile ranch of his with a thousand things to look at, donkeys grazing and Reuben and Simeon wrestling and women tending fires and tent flaps flapping and Leah laughing and little Joseph sleeping. Now, nothing. Stillness. Solitude. He's alone just like he was when he left home all those years ago. Jacob trembles, feels the fear of what's to come rise inside him, vying for control. Everything he's worked for for the past two decades might be taken away from him in the morning. It feels like it's already been taken as he stands here, stripped. But then, a sound, a shape, moving in the darkness. A man lunges toward him, and before he knows it, Jacob's in a wrestling match. They fall to the ground, the gravel crunching under the weight of their bodies, their limbs tangled, the two of them grunting, struggling, each trying to pin the other. Minutes pass. Immense effort expended, neither one losing. An hour ticks by. The fight persisting, one strained hold after another, neither man making much progress, but neither one backing down. What is happening? Another hour passes as the bizarre match continues. Jacob won't give up. As the two grapple, the first hints of dawn begin draining the darkness from the sky. At that moment, the stranger suddenly overpowers Jacob, striking Jacob's hip, wrenching it out of socket. Ligaments and nerves and blood vessels tear and he screams with pain, but Jacob will not let go. Finally, Jacob's challenger says, let me go, dawn is breaking. No, Jacob replies, the pain in his leg a raging fire. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob put it together at some point during the night. Only days before, those beings had appeared. They were, well, they were heavenly. That was the only way to describe it. There were so many of them. Mahanaim, he'd named that place. Two camps, because clearly his clan was not the only one there. And then, sleeping in the wilderness that night when he fled from home all those years ago, he'd seen wondrous things. Right there among the rocks and the cypress trees, Yahweh was in that place, and he hadn't known it. Now, as he returns home, well, who's to say Yahweh is not here as well? Surely this man he's wrestled with all night isn't just some man. How has Jacob not lost yet? More urgently, if this is Yahweh become flesh or some manifestation of him, this is Jacob's chance. This is the one who can give him the blessing, the hope, the security he so desperately craves. 
the favor he's wanted his whole life. And now, with Esau and his 400 men bearing down on him, he knows he needs it more than ever. A blessing given, not swindled, bestowed face to face, not under the guise of a false identity. And so, agony radiating from his hip, with the last traces of adrenaline long gone from his system, Jacob, exhausted but unyielding, squeezes out his demand. I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man locks eyes with Jacob. What is your name? His name. The name his father gave him. Named him after his brother's foot. The name that doesn't just mean heel, but ouster, usurper. The name that feels like a basket carrying everything he wants to be rid of. Jacob, he answers. Then, their muscles still flexing, sweat and dirt smeared across their faces, the man says to this second-born son, Your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. A new name, a name that's about who he is and what he's like and what he's done, a name that sees and affirms him. It's not what he asked for but he's not even thinking about what he asked for anymore. God wrestler, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. How do you wrestle with God and win? Jacob asks the man his name, but mystery prevails. It's not time for that. Not yet, at least. And then, Wonder of wonders, Jacob is blessed. Right there on the ground, limbs locked, dirt in his beard, eyes bleary, biceps trembling, exhausted, fighting tears and every impulse to give up. The man pronounces a divine blessing on Jacob, on Israel. The words fall on him, heavy with favor. Israel's grip loosens, his knuckles return to their natural color, his hands open. And as far as we know, he doesn't tell anyone exactly what he hears that morning. The words of favor or protection or approval or love. They'll just be for him. He'll keep them, remember them, cling to them for the rest of his life. Israel's femur is set back in place, and just as quickly as he appeared, the man is gone. In a few hours, Isaac's secondborn will in fact encounter Esau, the brother who had so much stolen but is able from his vast resources to put together an envoy of 400 at a moment's notice blessed, clearly, without Isaac's blessing. 
It's not an army after all. Instead of finding an opponent bent on vengeance, Israel will see his powerful older brother running toward him with tears of joy in his eyes. A startling grace. Esau will fall on Israel's neck and kiss him. And together, they'll weep. But right now, the sound of his new name still ringing in his ears, Israel decides to name this place Peniel, the face of God. When people ask why, he says, because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun finally rises above the exhausted Israel, flooding the Jabbok and its banks with light and color, the blue of the water, the scarlet blossoms of the beautiful, poisonous oleander. Israel looks to the horizon and sets out to meet his brother face to face. Changed, basking in victorious defeat, head held high and walking with an unmistakable limp. Justin here. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you'd share it with somebody. I'd also be thrilled if you'd leave a quick review. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. A new episode of Holy Ghost Stories drops every other Monday. Subscribe so you don't miss anything. And if you're looking for more, you can head to holyghoststories.org and sign up for the latest. A newsletter I send out every couple of weeks where I share what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, and stuff I think is cool. You can find a direct link in the show notes. Till next time.